Hello, and welcome to your most obedient and humble servant. This is a women's history podcast where we feature 18th and early 19th century women's letters that don't get as much attention as we think they should. I'm your host, Catherine Garrett. The letter that we're featuring in this week's episode is actually quite a long letter, so instead of going into the entirety of the letter, I'm just going to dig very much into one excerpt from it. I know I've said that I'm not going to do that on this podcast, but it's my podcast and I'm going to do what I want. <laughs> For this episode, we're going to dig into what this particular excerpt tells us about 18th century gender and womanhood. Context of the letter, uh, the letter in question is from Abigail Nabby Adams to her brother, John Quincy Adams, and it is dated November 27th, 1785. So this is not Abigail Adams, wife of John Adams. This is John and Abigail Adams' daughter. So that's why I'm going to call her Nabby, because that was her nickname. At the time of this letter, she is living in London with her mother and father. This was during the period when John Adams was serving as the first U.S. minister to Great Britain. Nabby is writing a letter to her brother, John Quincy Adams, who had left Paris in May of that year to go back to Boston and finish his formal education. Uh, you might remember from previous episodes, this is about that same time period where he is studying so hard that he's making himself dizzy just being a huge dork <laughs> in Boston. Nabby at this point is 20 years old. The entire first section of this letter is just her making fun of John Quincy Adams for one of his crushes that she met. So feel free to check that out. That's also very cute. But that's not the reason why I picked this letter. I picked this one because of one paragraph where Nabby describes hearing about the famous Mademoiselle Deon. So I'm going to go ahead and read that excerpt now. Abigail Nabby Adams to John Quincy Adams, November 27th, 1785. Pray, did you ever hear of the famous Mademoiselle Deon? who served as chargé d'affaires to France, and afterwards as ambassador from that court to this, who obtained Le Croix de Saint-Louis, and was in several engagements, who fought two duels on the part of some ladies, and many more extraordinary matters, whose works make thirteen volumes, etc. She has lately arrived in this city, and these gentlemen had dined with her and were speaking of her. She has resumed la vie des dames, but Mr. D. told me he was sure she might go dressed in la bidome and not be noticed, but she could not go as a lady. She wears her croix de Saint-Louis. She wears her croix de Saint-Louis, and as one may well suppose, is a singular figure, as well as an extraordinary character. The Adams Papers footnote identified Mademoiselle Deon as Chevalier Deon, and noted that while there was confusion regarding her sex during her lifetime, her autopsy reported her to be male. This piqued my interest, because, to me, just from that paragraph and that footnote, it sounds as though Nabby's describing somebody who we would describe today as a transgender woman. Now, I'm sure many of you listening to this are yelling at me for not recognizing that name, but I had not heard of uh, Deon before this letter. So this was my first introduction. And so in the 18th century, there wasn't necessarily a language for what we would describe as somebody who's transgender today, but just because that language didn't exist, that doesn't mean that transgender people didn't exist or people who had experiences that today we might consider to be transgender. First of all, a little bit of background about Deon. Uh, she referred to herself with female pronouns at the end of her life, so that's what I'm going to do as well. Deon was a French aristocrat uh, who was born in Burgundy in 1728. She became a successful military officer, diplomat, she was a spy. 
for the French during the Seven Years' War and eventually actually went to London as Minister Plenipotentiary, which is basically like an ambassador position. And she continued her work in espionage in London. She was awarded the Cross of San Luis, which gave her the title of Chevalier. But after a falling out with a superior officer, in retaliation, she published a lot of her diplomatic correspondence in a book, which caused a huge scandal. So around 1770, rumors started to circulate in London and in Paris that de Jong was actually a woman disguised as a man. In the mid-1770s, there were bets placed in London bars on either Dayon the Philly or Dayon the Stallion. By 1777, Dayon appeared almost exclusively in women's clothes, and she said that she had been disguised as a man for the entirety of her career. So by the 1780s, when this letter was written, Dayon was kind of a feminist icon. Uh, Mary Wollstonecraft wrote about her. She appeared in a list of woman worthies. Just imagine this time period, pretty strict gender roles. Here's this woman that has fought in military engagements and fought in duels and won military awards. So sort of feminists were happy to welcome Dayon in. Uh, and Dayon herself collected, according to one of the articles I read researching this, the largest private collection of proto-feminist works of any known 18th century book collector. So she's got this massive feminist library. Uh, the person who wrote the article that I read basically makes the argument that Dayan's not actually trans. It's part of that sort of spy subterfuge thing. I don't know what exactly what benefit Dayan would get from pretending to be a woman. I have never found anything that seems very convincing to me as this is something that's going to destroy the British, right? <laughs> but there's debate, as there always is, about these things. I, I personally think that uh, it makes a lot of sense for a uh, trans woman to collect a large feminist library, and that's pretty cool. As has been made very obvious by just the intro to this letter, I'm not an expert on transgender history or transgender studies, or even on 18th century gender roles as it would apply to the trans experience. So I wanted to bring someone in who knows a little bit more about the subject than I do. I am delighted today to be joined by Julia Fatasek, a PhD student who studies transgender femininity in 18th century British literature. So hello, Julia. Hi. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's going to be so much fun. Thank you for having me. So uh, first of all, can you tell me a little bit more about your work? I study British literature of the 18th century. Uh, and as you said, I, I study transgender femininity in that literature. So I tend to look at literature in a pretty weird way. I, I look for stuff that feels trans. I can explain more about that if I have the time, but you know, I, I just look for things where people who would not be perceived as women feel feminine or feel kind of out of place in, in their masculine gender roles. Uh, I'm interested in femininity more broadly. So there's a bunch of things that I do, but I, I look at literature over the course of kind of the entire 18th century. The long 18th century? Yes, the very long 18th century in my case. So I know that the Enlightenment brought about a lot of changes in the way that European people thought about gender. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a complicated question because the 18th century seems to be the site of a lot of changes to how uh, European people conceived of gender. Prior to the 18th century, um, we're looking at what seems to be a much more flexible system of gender, which is to say that gender was not necessarily in the minds of, of people then innately connected to one's biology. People who had vaginas could be very masculine and people who had penises could be extremely feminine and, and potentially they could become women or become men despite what their sex assignment might be. And that even sort of bleeds over into the medical theories where 
uh, men and women were not conceived of as totally different types of beings as they were much later in the 18th century. Uh, so there's this kind of like space for play is how a lot of uh, scholars describe it, where your gender could be a lot of things. And indeed, it, it seemed to be uh, whatever face you were presenting at the moment. So there wasn't necessarily the sense of like an internal gender identity. It was just your habitus. It was what you were presenting for the day. That's sort of what your gender was, which is not to say that, you know, it's like this transgender utopia or something, but it was, it was playful and, and weird and varied. And, and, you know, we know about uh, Shakespearean cross-dressed roles and, and all sorts of stuff like that. There's yeah. a kind of playfulness to it. Right. And then later in the century, what starts to happen is as the enlightenment gets really invested in, and I, I use that term kind of tongue-in-cheek because it wasn't always so enlightened, but uh, as people in the 18th century get really invested in anatomical science and medicine and things like that, uh, they start to articulate a theory of sex differentiation where men and women are fundamentally different and the characters of men and women are based on those fundamental differences. So now all of a sudden, uh, not only is femininity soft and, and nurturing and whatever else, but that's also explicitly the domain of women. And that that women can't really be anything else. This is kind of increasingly the mainstream view, right? And we see weird things where, like, in the early part of the century where gender was kind of more playful, there was a, this, this idea that, like, a woman who dressed as a man, for instance, could easily pass as a man. Like, it would be no problem for, uh, you know, like, a, a woman to put on a military uniform and be seen as a man the entire time she was in the, in the military, as is the case with Hannah Snell. Uh, whereas later in the century, all of a sudden people start having this belief that like that could never happen. Like that's preposterous that uh, I would all like, you know, know right off the bat, if I saw someone wearing the, the wrong gendered clothes that they wouldn't pass. I would know, of course I would know because innately they're just different. So we see that change happen really rapidly. And in fact, some of the same people over the course of the century seemingly changed their mind over the course of like 10 years about how gender works. So it's, it's weird and dynamic. So I do think it's interesting that there's this like flexibility and playfulness of what femininity and masculinity were, which like we're much more rigid with it even now, I think. Absolutely. Um, right? uh, we're, we're total inheritors of, of the late 18th century regime. <laughs> yeah. and it, it's hard to get out of that even, like even when we're reading early 18th century stuff, it's hard to disentangle ourselves from that. And just even reading the, the articles I was finding about Dion that were written like between 1985 and now, you can tell so much more about like the time period that the author was writing, really. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so much day on scholarship is just like incredibly 90s. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. All right. So um, at this time period, say, okay, 1785, did the concept of what it meant to be feminine, feminine or masculine, was that different than the way we would think of gender roles? Like what are the similarities and differences? Uh, it's probably not so different. Um, you know, the idea that women are, are mothers and soft and, and exist to make the, the lives of men easier and more delightful. Like that's totally present in the 18th century. We do see some kind of weirdness going on in terms of, of how 18th century people viewed like uh, warriorhood and like the, the proper role of a man in society. The 18th century was kind of invested, or I, I should say a lot of people in the 18th century were kind of invested in viewing themselves as um, post the kind of like violent barbaric wars of the past that now is a much more of a gentleman's culture. And so a man uh, was expected to be kind of genteel and, and um, proper and polished, right? So there was a kind of change in that regard where men were no longer expected to be um, savage 
strong warriors. And this kind of caused a, a weird debate in society, which was like, are men becoming effeminate? You know, like what's happening to men in society? So I think that debate, I don't know. I, I, there's probably still people saying stuff like that, but um, yeah, I, I think that idea that like men were supposed to be these like little gentlemen and everything. I think in, in some regard that's maybe gone away for us. I think there's a lot of people now that are much more in the like, maybe it's like our sports culture, like, you know, the raw, our masculinity is so hard. Yeah. Uh, I think to 18th century people, some of that would have been like, whoa, like he's off a little bit. <laughs> I, I know I've read a little bit about like the concept of virtue used to be like yeah. manly virtue, whereas now the definition of that word is like completely changed. Yeah. And stuff like, like crying, like men could totally cry in the 18th century. It was, it was actually a sign of like your, your strong uh, moral character that you could cry over things that were uh, emotionally affecting. Right. So that's maybe also yeah. different from our current culture. Yeah. Uh, it's the total culture of sentimentality, right? Like you're okay. It's okay to feel sad and, and to, shed tears about things. When and how did you first learn about uh, the Chevalier Dion? Uh, so I, uh, I mean, you know, she's, she's a figure in the culture. I was dimly aware of her. I'm a trans woman myself, so um, she exists. Like we know about her, right? <laughs> um, but, but in terms of my work, as I said, I'm a, I'm a British literature specialist. So okay. uh, that doesn't necessarily lend itself to understanding the life of a French diplomat. Um, <laughs> but it, it turns out, you know, Dion was kind of a English celebrity uh, for a time uh, and her transition was very public and it caught the public's interest really strongly. And there's actually a, a late 18th century novel by the poet Mary Robinson, who is a famous kind of early female romantic uh, that basically takes the story that Dion presented, right? I was born a girl. I was raised as a boy, that whole, whole thing. Mary Robinson wrote this very long, weird novel where one of the characters is that person, Sir Sidney, who is the main character, Walsingham. That's the, the name of the novel is Walsingham. So the main character is Walsingham. Sir Sidney is his rival. And then in the end, it turns out Sidney is actually a woman. And then they get married and live happily ever after. So that's really how I got very interested in Dan because I, I like that novel and it's part of my dissertation. And, and now I'm, I'm kind of interested in reading Dan's memoirs or an English translation of them rather as a piece of literature in the 18th century. I think that's a, a really interesting thing I could do. So I would like to use one of Dan's letters, I think, in the future mm -hmm. for the podcast. Um, but I was only finding things in French and I cannot speak French. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem, right? I also don't speak French. So, <laughs> so it's kind of like, I, I feel conflicted about doing this work because it's like, uh, I can't actually read it in the, the original. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, I'm like, I'm sure there's details in here that I'm not picking up because I'm getting the like 1990s male historian well, version. It, no, seriously, like that's a real problem. Like how much of this translation is colored by that? I can't know until I can read the original. I, I read an article you wrote for Medium where you talk about looking at history or reading a text through a queer lens uh, or a trans lens. Mm -hmm. Could you describe a little bit more about what this means and how it could be helpful in understanding Dion? Yeah, I, uh, so that one was about uh, Lord Byron, who's also um, one of my, or that was my example anyway, it was Byron. Uh, Byron is one of my kind of like guiding uh, figures in, in my work. I love Byron. He tends to end the period of study that I do. And I'm also convinced that he probably was a trans woman. Um, <laughs> yeah, so so uh, that whole thing was sparked by, uh, there was an author at the time who was writing a book about um, the figure we know as Dr. James Berry, who was a trans man. And this author was writing about him as a queer woman, even though that was uh, pretty blatantly against Berry's uh, expressed wishes in life. Uh, he, he really wanted to be remembered as a man. Uh, and so this was kind of a big blow up. And, and she had this defense about 
uh, you know, reclaiming queer womanhood and, and stuff like this. So I had written this article uh, where I explained um, basically how I view doing this work. Because I, I do a thing, as many queer scholars do, uh, that we might call it queer intervention or queering or transing in my case, right? Where uh, I have to, to sometimes make claims about texts that are not explicitly there, right? Like I talk about Gulliver's Travels all the time. Like Gulliver's Travels is not explicitly a transgender text, but I make that argument anyway, right? So that that's kind of an imposition on the text. Like I, I really have to, to make a claim for that. And so I, I was trying to think through like, how do I defend doing this, you know? Because there's always people who will say stuff like, you can't, you can't read the past this way. And, yeah. and like, Jonathan Swift or whoever like would never have written their literature this way. I'm like, that's true, I guess. But so I was just trying to think of like, what's the ethical way of approaching history and what's the result of queering or transing stuff. And so part of my argument was, uh, and, and th- we can think about James Berry in this case, you know, if we, if we um, read James Berry as a queer woman, as this author wanted to do, uh, there's a kind of trans erasure going on there. So there's a kind of foreclosure of that possibility and I, I don't really think it adds much to the conversation about queer women historically, because there are actually plenty of women who cross-dressed and, and did exactly what this author wants to claim Barry was doing. Right? There's plenty of subjects for that work. But transmasculinity is something that's um, a lot smaller and more fragile and harder to find historically for a variety of reasons. So personally, I believe it's kind of a responsibility of ours to nurture readings like that, right? That it opens up more possibilities than it closes upon and that, that ultimately is the goal of scholarship, right? That we want to uh, raise more possibilities and, and uh, nurture more minds and, and do more with the material than try to find some finicky version of the truth that can't possibly exist, right? So, right. yeah, I don't, I, it was a complicated argument, I think, that I, I'm not sure I articulated it very well in that, that article, but um, ultimately it's how I read things is I, I want to uh, expand the possibilities of, of any given text. Right. Well, I, I might put a link to it if the show, in the show notes, if you don't mind. Yeah, I just, per- yeah. I liked your argument for, for viewing something through a particular lens, because I yeah. think that it can make, it can make something that is complicated more clear, or it can confuse things depending on which lens you look at things through. And so why limit yourself to which lens you're going to analyze a life or a text. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, ultimately, I think uh, things should be generative and expansive. Uh, expansive and, um, yeah. and I think ultimately, like reading things as trans, you know, we don't have to definitively claim things are trans, but to, to foreclose on the possibility, it's a real disservice, I think, to the, to the text. Exactly. It sort of leads into my next question. Like historians in particular, uh, sometimes show a reluctance to label a, historic of, a historical figure with a term that didn't exist during their own lifetime. You'll get all sorts of pushback to trying to say somebody even might could, could possibly be gay when it even there's like might be tons of evidence to it. Um, yeah. But so so what are your thoughts on the subject? So I'm not a historian. <laughs> I'll start there. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, we're talking about Dayon. Um, this is the one of the big arguments that's been made about Dayon is like, uh, transness did not exist then, so she couldn't be trans, which I, I think is kind of a silly argument. I, I sort of get it. I mean, the idea is that like, uh, being transgender now is this kind of like full-blown identity, um, and that, that that therefore requires a certain knowledge of the identity and, and all this stuff. But, but ultimately, like, my argument is, you know, uh, cis people didn't invent the concept of being trans. Like, certainly there were people who, who felt trans in some capacity before the, the concept existed, right? Yes. Like, I, I'm a trans woman. I experienced, like, gender dysphoria at age four. Like, I wanted to be 
like Sailor Moon when I grew up. And I didn't know what being transgender was. I didn't understand that there was a community of people. I didn't understand that I could like take estrogen or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I still wanted that. I still felt that that made more sense for myself than whatever people were telling me, right? So I don't see why it's such a stretch to say that like Dayon could have felt something similar, right? Yeah. To, to say that she's transgender is is not me saying like, she understood herself as a transgender person. It's a kind of shorthand for saying like she felt something similar to what I felt. Yes, I, and I think that makes perfect sense. And this, to me, uh, reading a lot of the articles that have come out about Dayan and the way that people have been writing about Dayan, it's people are just like doing somersaults and like coming up with all these insane reasons <laughs> that she would have spent the last half of her life as a woman. I li- like literally saw these articles that were like, well, it, in order to avoid political embarrassment. I, I know exactly who you're talking about. <laughs> and I, no, I'm going to name him because okay. actually I, I admire his work. It's good. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and like, I, you know, I think people think I like hate his work or like want to bag on it. I think his autobiography or his, his rather his biographies of, of Dayan are, are beautiful and passionate and compelling. Like I had so much fun reading his book. I loved it. I just think his, his understanding of what it means to be trans uh, and therefore his understanding of Dayan's gender is misinformed, mostly because he wrote them as a cis guy in the 90s. Like he had no understanding of what it is to be trans and it shows so clearly. Yeah, he's, he, he, I mean, he's made arguments that uh, it was simultaneously a bid for her political career, that it was possibly caused by all the feminist reading she had done, and also that it was like a religious conversion experience where she wanted to be like a bride of Christ. So there's like this threefold crazy uh, uh, explanation for why she's a woman. Yeah. yeah I, all, also, he can avoid saying that she was transgender. Uh, it was just sort of startling to me. And then I, I read another article that was said that it was because it was actually um, part of a like political conspiracy that got out of hand. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's all these, you know, like Dayan's life is sort of, uh, I think like invites stuff like this because her life was so weird anyway. I mean, like, she was even a if, spy. Yeah, right. <laughs> even if she had never transitioned, she still led a fascinating life. Yes. Uh, and, and being a spy, I think lends itself to like um, readings of deceit and everything. Uh, you know, and setting aside like the transphobia of readings like that, which is kind of there. I, I get it. Like, I, I do get it. And I, Dayan also had weird ways of referring to herself. If you read her memoirs, like she switches pronouns a lot. And okay. uh, she clearly, in my mind, had a very loose conception of, of gender. She was very fluid, I think. So uh, in some ways, it's not so inappropriate to to say stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, I just think a cis guy got a hold of this stuff first and for all the truly, and I, I do mean like very good stuff he's done for Dayon scholarship. I, I really don't want to bag on him. Yeah. Please Gary, if you're out there listening, um, <laughs> I'm a fan. Um, I just, yeah, I would love to talk to him, uh, you know, trans woman to man about uh, what's happening there. Cause I don't quite get it. The roundabout point that I was trying to make is sometimes if a story just is so much more clear and makes so much more sense, if you, we take our modern understanding of trans experience, this seems to fit with a lot of Dion's experience. It's not completely out of line to view it through that lens. Yeah, I mean, really, she was a trans woman. It's such so an easier explanation than everything else. Yeah. Uh, sometimes the simplest. Is I mean, yeah, really, in this case, like, 
come on but transphobia and even just uh sexism of the if the political side of the life is much more important than the gender side of life (laughs) yeah i mean like really there is a a pretty heavy misogynist element to a lot of the scholarship surrounding her and a transphobic element that i don't think people even realize they're engaging in yeah Um, and and i think that's true of of uh you know i've I've dedicated myself to like correcting a lot of the scholarship on gender in the 18th century because i i think that shows up a lot because you know i i mentioned like gulliver's travels and stuff like that like i'm not the first person to to notice that characters like gulliver or whoever are like feminized in the text like that happens right i'm just the first person to be like hey maybe this is transgender right yeah <laughs> um yeah because uh, you know there's a perception of transness as as weird and deviant and insane and i think you do kind of see that in scholarship about dan that because she was so politically savvy and so clearly intelligent that there's no way she was trans right because she's competent that's kind of the unspoken assumption being made yes the cherry on top is the logical jumps people have to make to make that argument right. that are so clearly irrational. Right. Um, not not 100% irrational, but just so uh, I know. So you, you say you're not a historian, but do you have uh, any thoughts about how historians of the 18th century could take better advantage of queer and transgender theory? Yeah, I mean, I, I think acknowledging it, uh, you know, and like, <laughs> and like genuinely like citing trans people who write about this stuff like that. That's a big problem I see with the scholarship is like, uh, you know, trans people have talked about her and I never see them cited, yeah. right? Like it, it's just cis people all the way down and tends to be a lot of men too, you know? So it's like, we're talking about a trans woman and trans women don't get to talk about her. So that's one aspect where it's just purely a citational issue. Yeah. Uh, but also I think uh, trans studies tends to get discounted by a lot of other fields uh, as something kind of like weird and inaccessible and totally goofy and I think actually if you you actually read what we're saying and, and the, the really dense theoretical conversations we have all the time and we have like uh, journals like TSQ, for instance, um, that have been running for a long time, that there's a lot of really interesting stuff there. And we have thought about problems like how do we approach history through a transgender lens? Like these are things we've talked about again and again and again. So this idea that cis people, right, who have no access to that experience feel that they're able to answer those questions just off the cuff when we- Without doing the reading. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, like the, the, the work is there. Like, look at the work. <laughs> That's really how I feel about it. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's interesting stuff I think you could do. I, I'm not a historian, so I, I don't quite know how to work that into a historian's uh, tool set. But, but I know there are ways. There are trans historians, right? So Yeah, totally. Yeah. I normally end my podcast with a discussion of what is relatable about a letter and what is- different uh Mm -hmm. so what's something about a letter that makes you really see how humanity has changed or things that have stayed the same is there anything about either nabby's letter or about what we know about dayon that strikes you as relatable or as extremely alien yeah i was i had not seen nabby's letter before you sent it to me so i was pretty interested in it yeah (laughs) dayon was a big celebrity so it doesn't surprise me that much uh and and in fact i believe this is something kate's mentions in this book is is everyone talked about dayon like teenage girls were talking about dayon like she was just fascinating to people. But, you know, the thing I think that jumps out immediately about Nabby's letter is it's kind of cruel about Dayon's appearance, as a lot of people were, because Dayon was a non-passing trans woman, as we tend to, to refer to. And I am also included in that category sometimes, right? Uh, passing is a weird concept, but Dayon, people were not fooled into thinking she was a cis woman, right? Like that, or, or I suppose they were because they had no concept of what cis meant, but 
you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, right. So, so that's something that Nabi brings up is, is, um, I believe she says something like she could go in, in habit of a man and, and, you know, uh, easily, but she could never do that as a lady. Right. Um, yeah. But so, even, well, but the whole time saying she and her and all right, these things. Right. I mean, she, she sincerely believes that she is a woman, right? Like that's, yeah. that's also there, but also that she's a woman who looks like a man. That's <laughs> what Nabi says basically. Right. So yeah. that unfortunately is, is very familiar, right? Like that's oh. what people say about trans women all the time. So yeah, that's like Dayon experienced transphobia. And if you read her memoirs and, and read scholarship about her, as much as people want to deny that, she experienced transphobia. Like that's that's it. She's afraid of getting assaulted on the street. Mm-hmm. She had people making humiliating bets about what her genitals looked like. I mean, this is all pretty standard transphobia, really. So that's not so weird. The the thing that I find fascinating about Nabby's letter, and maybe kind of alien, is her um very sincere admiration i believe of of who dayon is right like it's still like yeah i don't think she's very attractive but she's incredible like she's very smart she's a accomplished combat veteran like she's done all these things like she's a woman who did all this stuff isn't that great that i think is like so wonderful because i think trans women do not often get classed as feminist heroes you know like I, i think trans women look up to other trans women and then like the general category of women their icons are always cis women, right? So this idea that 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 Dayon, this person who had publicly like uh, lived her life, half her life as a man, and then came out as a woman later, was being admired in this way by by girls all over the world. It was like, that's so heartening. That's the kind of stuff where I'm like, you know, if there's a benefit to reading Dayon as trans, it's because we get this like incredible feminist figure yeah. that women looked up to sincerely in, in, in her own time. So that's I mean, Nabi's letter is, is like gushing about her, really. Yeah, that, that struck me as well. I thought that was really cool. And the fact that Dion had such a large library of feminist literature. Yeah. Uh, I just think, anyway. She was like one of the most well-read, like feminist, uh, I hesitate to say scholar, but kind of. Like she was like a feminist philosopher by the time she got back to France. She yeah. was sincerely well-read in some like, some obscure, complicated texts. <laughs> Like, it, yeah, I mean, that's the thing, too, is I think there's always this this perception of her as, like, deceptive and insincere, and, uh, you know, she put the work in, like, <laughs> really, uh, no matter what her motivations were. Uh, she, she certainly understood feminist philosophy better than most people on the continent at that time. Yeah, I think I think she's a, a great feminist hero. <laughs> which... I think so. I'm not so big a fan of her like imperialism, but hey. <laughs> That's true. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming and speaking with me. I think um this was a, a really fun conversation and I think you brought a really great perspective to this content. I, I do actually encourage people to read like uh, the work uh, the some of the scholarship that we've been talking about. Uh, I think it still presents a lot of good stuff. Uh, you just have to have that perspective in mind that maybe well, there's different ways we can approach her gender, right? But uh, there's so much to learn about her and so much to admire about her as a person yeah. that I sincerely hope listeners will um, go out and, and read more about her because she, she deserves it. That is perfect. Thank you so much. <laughs> For my listeners, uh, I will put some of these books and quotes that we've been talking about in the show notes. You can check them out. And as ever, I am your most obedient and humble servant. Thank you very much. <laughs>